Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Greetings, traitors and saboteurs, and welcome to your weekly instructions on how to undermine Britain on the orders of your paymasters in Brussels. My name's Dorian Linsky, and you're listening to Romaniacs, the podcast that tracks the snowball of Brexit as it tumbles down the mountainside of history. There were some interesting developments when we had our week off in Glastonbury and tried to pretend that the past year was all just a terrible dream. We'll be talking about them today. The EU departure negotiations begin in earnest, and Brexit Secretary David Davis went down to an early defeat as his insistence on the format for the talks was rejected on the very first day. Then our cardboard Prime Minister substitute, Theresa May, finally announced a post-Brexit residency offer for EU nationals still living in the UK. And to everyone's complete surprise, a survey by accountants Deloitte found that some 36% of non-British workers are thinking of leaving the UK before 2022. That's 1.2 million workers, and the largest group of the lot was highly skilled workers from EU countries, with 47% considering leaving Britain. Is the Brexit brain drain now on? We'll be discussing all these issues later, but first it's time to say Ramona's assemble to our panel of regulars. <laughs> Ian Dunt is the editor of politics.co.uk, and he's just come back from his first ever Glastonbury. Hello, Ian. How are you? Uh, yes. Uh, recovering, step by step. Did you um, hear the O Jeremy Corbyn chant enough? I More than enough. Thank you very much. Um, I would happily never hear that again for the rest of my life. I didn't actually, to be honest, when I, because it was so ubiquitous, I kind of thought when he, when he turned up to do the speech that... It was going to be like Hugo Chavez. I just thought it would be minutes of them chanting this thing over and over again. And in fact, I actually thought the reaction to him was pretty relatively subdued. They chanted it a bit at the beginning, but at the end. And the speech itself is just so, you know, vacuous, just like like a stitched together series of hallmarks cards, really. That he just I, It's not surprising to me that no one could really get too passionate about it. So that wasn't quite as appalling a moment as I feared it, it might be in the end. Well, the crowd was so big. I think it was as big as the Rolling Stones or close hmm. to um, that I had to watch it from basically inside a tree. Couldn't see anything except foliage <laughs> from my face. And there was a massive log jam, and someone near me, a little way in, just walked off and went, sod this, it's not like he's Martin Luther King. <laughs> <laughs> which, was a, which was, you know, a fair critique. But it was definitely an event, and it was very weird seeing some people on social media trying to sort of downplay it or suggest mm. that it didn't matter because everybody there was, like, posh and lived in a yurt. Yeah, it was, like, it was clearly a big deal. Yeah, and, and I, I hate this, uh, you know... Having now been to Glastonbury, you can confirm it is not just full of rich people at all. Like there seems to be really quite a remarkable spectrum of people there, and you do not need to be rich to spend two hundred and twenty quid or whatever it is on a ticket. People on low incomes are capable of saving up money for things that they want to do, whether it's a holiday in Spain or a big TV. And that kind of sneering condescension that met the sort of crowds there, I thought, was completely unfair. What it is, it's a very particular sort of range of people of English people most of whom are motivated by some quite optimistic values around politics and openness and fairness um, and they were going to respond to his message quite well with the exact extent to which they're responding to that and not just a sense of joy at Theresa May you know suffering a bit of humiliation is up question I think. yeah a friend of mine said, compared it to said it was sort of a Princess Diana moment and that there was there were a lot of kind of emotions swimming around that 
you couldn't quite make sense of that there was there was definitely something happening in the crowd that wasn't entirely related to what he was saying. Yeah, well, absolutely. But and even the chant itself. I mean, lots of people on Twitter. I've been writing about it today, and lots of people on Twitter were sort of saying, "Well, look, this it's a sort of half ironic chant. Like ultimately, it's not meant to be the serious thing. It's sort of adopting the football stuff." I, I don't quite get that. I mean, I'm sure there's a bit of that in there, and there's definitely a breadth of people that are doing. I mean, some of the people I spoke to who were doing that chant were clearly it was just it was the chant of the event of that year, and that was how they expressed their sense of togetherness with the people around them. And you know, others would have would have probably not signed up to everything he had to say, but nevertheless, they they still had some meaning in it. But I still feel ultimately you are sat there and you're chanting a politician's name, and you're not doing it in a mocking way, and I find that really disturbing. I, I don't find that, that that's the way that we do politics in this country of the cult of the leader, of the cult of personality. Theresa May just tried that in an election and came a spectacular cropper on it. And now I see the left doing something very, very similar. And it seems to me that that idea of focusing on the individual rather than policies is at the heart of what, you know, most forms of tyranny are. Now, I know that sounds absurd because a bunch of, you know, really quite nice people at Glastonbury chanting in Corbyn's name does not lead to tyranny or anything like that. And I'm not trying to say so. But it does mean that there's something that I am uncomfortable with it. And I do find it alarming, even in that relatively innocuous setting. And I have to say that, um, you know, the last time the Labour Party invested so much blind faith in a leader, his name was Tony Blair. <laughs> <laughs> That's a former economist, business editor and uh, amateur Brexitologist Peter Collins, who just went to uh, Dubai instead. Many owe Jeremy Corbyn chants in Dubai? Strangely not. I could walk around wearing my Jeremy Corbyn lost the election T-shirt without getting punched, <laughs> which was great. And uh, what are they saying about Brexit over there? I mean, I'm sure it's... Well, it's of course, most people, in, most people in Dubai uh, regard Brexit as a brand of luxury Swiss watch because you've got Breguet, you've got Breitling, and now you've got Brexit. The only difference is that after two years on a Brexit watch, the battery runs out. <laughs> <laughs> so do you think we're out of our minds? Do the people in Dubai? Yeah. Well, they've got something slightly bigger on their doorstep at the moment. They, we've got the EU, they've got the Gulf Cooperation Council, uh, which has decided that one of its, its rogue member, uh, Qatar, is a friend of terrorists, which of course is completely unknown in that part of the world. Um, and they're blockading its airports, or they're stopping its flights from flying, they're blockading the, 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 uh, the borders and so on. That makes our little contretemps with the EU seem like a, a little bit of a vicar's tea party, it seems I to me. I think David Davis is taking notes in case he needs to get tough. <laughs> in, or, or indeed, Michel Barnier perhaps yeah, yeah. taking the same <laughs> approach, yes. Okay, let's tuck into Theresa May's citizenship offer. The question of what's going to happen to the 3.2 million EU citizens who are already in Britain has been hanging over the whole process since even before the referendum. Remainers have accused Brexiteers and government of using them as bargaining chips for the negotiations. And in turn, Brexiteers and their few lonely cheerleaders in the press have pointed out that it's unwise to give up on your key positions early on in the negotiations. What got people really annoyed about this was the requirement for those of settled status to sign a special ID database. Whether that means a central database or requirement to carry an actual ID card remains to be seen. Theresa May said she wanted to put their anxiety at rest, but the Independent described the offer as quietly sinister. Ian? I'm not too head up about that part, even though you know I would consider ID cards completely intolerable in Britain in any capacity, whoever has to have them. Um, I mean, that was, as far as I understand it, that was a, that was a proposal by the Commission that the British government are responding to. And, and that's... Not unusual. I mean, the Europe, the continental politics is much more comfortable with that sort of form of, of thing than, than Britain ever has been. Um, I, I think really what that is, is that's indicative of something broader that is happening with these proposals. And that is that they're putting EU citizens into the British immigration system. And the British immigration system is incredibly bureaucratic. 
incredibly and profoundly cruel, cruel on a personal level towards individuals, very, very expensive and deeply dehumanizing. And so across these proposals, what we see is exactly what immigrants to Britain face all the time, which is a brutal system, an inhumane system, a completely faceless system, which for very trivial errors will penalize you in an extraordinary way. And when we start, you know, there's no mention here made of money, but I mean, you know, you start making applications for indefinite leave to remain, you're going to lose about two and a half grand. I mean, this is not some small business. That's a lot of your high tickets. That's a lot of customary tickets, exactly. Yeah, there's a lot of missed opportunities. And apparently currently it's, a, it's an 85 page form. Well, no, it used to be. There are some positives here, and we should probably... I mean, the, the form used to be 85 pages, and it used to have all these really quite complex things about your movements and about, you know, the, what kind of private health care you've had. It looks like lots of that will be removed. So, that's, uh, <laughs> unfortunately, this won't be much pleasure for those who've already filled out that form because they're going to have to do this all over again. But it seems like it will be streamlined, and this is quite crucial, and it could be quite crucial, I think, for the future of immigration debate in this country. It looks like there's some kind of shared burden of evidential proof on these. Now, that has not really been seen before in... in in immigration forms, usually you have to provide all the proof. They have to do absolutely nothing. The fact that there's even some element of shared proof there, that, that bodes very, very well indeed. Um, plus, you know, that there's some element of a guarantee here by them putting it out. And I do think that it's worth us taking a moment to criticise the EU on this as well, which is probably something that we don't do that often, but actually they do deserve considerable criticism on this. It would not have been difficult for them to maintain their universal line with the other with the other 27 states and yet said, look, we're going to pop out to issue a joint guarantee with Britain on people's residency rights ahead of talks. That, that EU thing of nothing is agreed until everything is agreed has been profoundly unhelpful here and has increased the anxiety on Europeans just as much as the British government's complete disgrace of doing the same sort of thing has committed that too. So, and in fact, another note on that is to note this, the, the thing with sequencing that we'll talk about later, where basically you have to agree this stuff now and then the future trade agreements later on, is going to come a bit of a cropper logically on this because we won't accept European Court of Justice jurisdiction to guarantee European citizens' rights. Therefore, we're going to say there has to be another body to do that, another you know international body, and that body will invariably be the same one that's going to be looking over the free trade deal. So actually, this is where sequencing becomes a problem because it's very hard to discuss this matter without going to the final free trade deal bit. So there is room to criticise the Europeans and to, to, to praise is too strong, but to you say there's some commendable stuff on the British side. However, overall, this is a quite abysmal proposal that's been put forward and it's very, very far away from the kind of generous proposal that Theresa May claimed it was. So when Corbyn says too little, too late, is that... Well, the funny thing is, Jeremy Corbyn's got most of the same restrictions. He won't accept the European Court of Justice jurisdiction over the deal either. You know, I mean, so the, the, the standard hypocrisy that he's going, if he's not willing to go that extra mile as well. And in fact, too little, I agree, in that if this was, look, she has gained nothing, absolutely nothing by not publishing this a year ago when she first became leader of the Tory party. She could have done it at any stage. The people that have been nervous would not have been nervous for the last year. The couples that have lied in bed together thinking, how are we going to make this work? Are we going to have to leave? Are we going to have to take our child out of school? Would not have had to have had those conversations. The damage to Britain's international reputation, whereby we just seem like the most mean-spirited, desperate, sort of, just, just just cruel sort of people would not have taken place to us either. And any of the sort of animosity that we've created among Europeans as to how we should be treated from now on would not have taken place. So this could all have been done. But best of all, you can unilaterally make a statement because you're doing it outside of negotiations. If we'd done it before Article 50, it was pulled, we'd go, fine. Well, this is the date. This is what we're prepared to offer. And we can make those guarantees now have the moral upper hand. By doing it after Article 50, it's all sucked up. All this is is an initial position statement, which will then get negotiated and we'll see where we are at the end of it. Yeah, there does seem to be a tremendous callousness 
towards sort of individuals and couples and families that you feel like even before the referendum, was there no plan? Was there no thought that mm. one of the first things you should do is reassure EU citizens living here, you know, that they don't have to kind of panic for another, you know, for the next year. Yeah, It, exactly. it just seems like there's a kind of, um, there wasn't enough talk about the human cost. Yeah. And, you know, it's good to hear Theresa May saying that this is going to be a light touch regime and so on. But come on, let's believe that when we see it. I mean, the Home Office's UK visas and immigration division doesn't do light touch. It does great clunking fist. That's, <laughs> it's understandable because, uh, as with all civil servants, they're terrified that anything that they agree to that hasn't been sort of, you know, carefully nailed down uh, is going to open up great big loopholes that people will go to court in a few years time who had nothing to do with the EU and say well hang on a second it says here you can't discriminate against me on the, on those grounds so they're going to be sitting there as is their, their habit looking through anything that's promised from the British side say oh no we can't use that phrase it's too clear you know we have to we have to be a little bit mm. more obscure to allow ourselves to be able to say that we didn't mean this we didn't mean that it's like getting planning permission that they don't want to let you have a new window on the side of your house because it means everybody else in town, whether suitable or not, can have the, the same window. That's that sort mm. of mentality, which is understandable because that's the brief that we give to these civil servants. It's ultimately our fault for, for putting them in that situation. But it's been it'll be a long time before the Home Office's immigration d division can get into the into the mood of light touch if they're ever allowed to, or into the mood of a default acceptance. I mean, the whole way that the department has functioned for years now is to default reject. Indeed, and what we've seen from applications from EU citizens over the last year there's not been some great big conspiracy to try and get them all out of the country it is just the home office's bog standard way of behaving which is you innately reject anything that comes to you unless you absolutely cannot avoid doing it and that's what they have done in these cases and that's what led to the constant sort of headlines of you know this woman from the netherlands being sent back after 40 years and being told to pack her bags so all of that's very very pernicious but i mean you you start really let's so take i mean the the main issue Boris Johnson, in fact, all the leavers during the during the campaign were constantly going around saying that EU citizens would have exactly the same rights that they have right now, that being before Brexit. Now, that is false. It was always false. And they've done nothing to try and accomplish it here because they quite clearly do not have the same rights. I mean, just on, on the basis of the ECJ, if you can't go to an independent court to guarantee your rights and they're not going to because we're saying that we weren't not going to accept the ECJ, that means they do not have the exact same rights. But then take something that I think more meaningful to most people would be the right of family to come visit and stay with you. Now, under British immigration law, you don't have that right at all. If you want to marry a foreign spouse, if you want to marry someone from outside the EU and, you know, in a couple of years, time someone from the eu as well you need to demonstrate that you earn eighteen thousand six hundred pounds you know in london world that doesn't sound too bad most people in london probably earn that much plenty of people in fact you know it's about the medium wage for a lot of people outside of london and in the north and the midlands basically says if you're on a low income you have no right you have to pick between the person you love or your country and that number which by the way as far as a choice goes is as is as clear an expression of a completely poisonous political culture as you could ever look for then that number actually starts rising for every kid that you bring with you so this is also about splitting up kids from their parents Europeans will now face this. Before they had European rights that guaranteed the family could come live with you, they will no longer have those rights. You take the thing about grandparents. When grandparents get old, they don't want social care, especially from lots of cultures. They're more used to having their children look after them as they get older. Now, British citizens have never had that right to bring over a grandparent so that they can care for them. That's made almost impossible. You almost never get any clearance on that. You have to really show that you don't have any income that you could take out normal social care. There's a variety of ways that they make it basically impossible. You can't even count 
how many tens of thousands of people in this country have have had to sit there while their parents or their grandparents grow old and die on their own. They were unable to take care of them because of the extreme cruelty of our immigration laws. Cruelty which now has been twisted into this idea that we've somehow got these completely open borders and we've lost control over immigration, whereas in fact the exact opposite problem is the case, which is that we have lost our moral minds over immigration, completely incapable of acting in a humane or compassionate or kind manner about it whatsoever. And now the sad thing about these proposals that really... A hurtful part of these proposals was we're about to see a bunch of EU citizens, three million people who didn't have to come face to face with this Kafkaesque monstrosity are suddenly going to be sucked up into that system and life will not be as easy for them as it was before in any number of ways. And just to add one more reason why it won't be uh, as, as easy for them before. Um, if you're British and you go and live in France for two or three years because you've got a sick relative or whatever or, or some whatever reason, or that's the only job you can find, you come back to Britain, you're still British. If you're a settled, if you've got settled status as an EU person, even if you've got that, you risk losing it after two years under this proposal. Mm. So again, you're not, your, your, your freedom is only relative and you're not in the situation you were before. If you're French now, you can go back, look after your granny for two years or three years and come back and resume your job in London. You won't be able to do that without risking losing it. This is what Brexit is. Brexit is bureaucracy and administration in order to damage yourself. Like, you know, this is the same. We talk mostly about goods, you know, when we're talking about stuff about customs checks and all that. This is just the human version of that. Before we had a system where you can cross borders, you can be with who you love. You can go somewhere because you're curious. You can go for a job. You can do what you like. And now it's all about looking back in your past. Oh, did you take two years out by mistake at one point? Well, that changes your status. You've got to fill out this incredibly long form. Go and have your fingerprints checked. All of that is control. They said that they wanted it, right? Take back control. So that's what they're getting. And this is what control entails. Utter, unspeakable tedium and the restriction of the human ability to do what they want to do. The ability of the state to tell you where you are and are not allowed to live. The ability of the state to tell you when you're allowed to be with your wife or with your children. Just authoritarianism and control. So they asked for it and now this is them getting it. All this talk of which EU migrants get to stay brings us to the question of who actually wants to stay. And the Deloitte survey, which found that 47% of highly skilled EU citizens in the UK are considering leaving after Brexit occurs. Those highly skilled EU workers were the most likely to want to leave, with only a third of all non-UK workers considering a move from Britain. So does this mean that the Brexit brain drain is finally on? The Deloitte survey backs up anecdotal evidence of EU workers who've said they no longer feel welcome in the UK. But it also relates to declining business confidence and a poor economic outlook. And also the collapsed value of the pound, which means that high earnings sent to families at home no longer buy as much as they did. Peter, what did the survey discover and how seriously should we treat it? Well, first, two health warnings. I'm, I'm sorry, as yet again, I'm going to be a bit of a party pooper about anything economic. First of all, a statistical health warning. Uh, the survey is based on responses from over 2,000 non-British workers, which they say that they found using crowdsourcing. Now, that doesn't sound to me like a proper representative sample. So obviously, it's more like a big straw poll. So we have to handle it with a bit of caution. And the second um, is my regular warning to Romaniacs that we shouldn't fall into the trap of seizing on any negative-sounding bit of Brexit-related news and cheering from the rooftops. That just opens up the argument that we're talking Britain down, da, 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 and, you know, all that, all that sort of nonsense. So always we should look at these things. They are important signs, but they should always be treated with a caution. There is positive news in the survey. Foreign workers, according to their survey, still see Britain as a very attractive place to work. They still would want to work here. We're ahead of America, Australia and Canada on this. However, 
a third of the EU citizens currently working in the UK and almost half of the highly skilled ones say that they're considering leaving within the next five years. That broadly is 1.2 million jobs. There is a normal rate of turnover. Um, People do come and go for several years, but that's around 5% a year. So we're talking about a basic doubling of the outflow of this survey comes to fruit. And as the report points out, it's going to be difficult to replace a lot of these skilled people and the temptation for businesses will not be to try and find British workers, train them up, giving them very, very expensive training, etc, etc. What they'll do is replace them with robots. Or, if in the case of, let's say, um, sort of high-tech companies, they'll say, well, all of our engineers and chemists and so on can only stay in the EU now, so let's move the laboratory to the EU. Uh, that won't be a particularly wonderful outcome if that happens. And which sectors does this affect... Most. Which lots most and lots reliant? of them. I mean, I mean, it goes from hotels and restaurants to, I guess, software companies, manufacturing. Uh, it's not just fruit pickers. It's all, you know, the, the one that we keep hearing about. And, of course, it's also nurses. We've ha- already had this finding that the number of applications from EU citizens who are qualified as nurses to come to Britain to practice as nurses has plummeted. And we're already finding it difficult to recruit enough nurses uh, without this happening. And, and plummeted by an astonishing amount. Yeah, okay, 90 I saw 96% and I yeah, thought that exactly, this, was, yeah. this was a typo and looked it up and it's, it's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's almost as if, you know, if you have an entire political culture dedicated to treating these people like a problem rather than an asset that you've got, then they might think, you know what, fuck this, I don't want to be here. That seems like a very cogent, you know, thing to me, a very sensible view for them to come to. I mean, I don't see how we can hold it against them. And then, as you say, there is the economic aspect of that, which is basically, you know, lots of remittance payments, lots of families rely on remittance payments back from the UK. If the pound is worth less, then that just becomes a less uh, less sensible idea. Obviously, it's easy to be sceptical about this kind of survey saying, oh, well, it's just people's intentions. It's like an opinion poll. People may not do this. However, the danger is that momentum sets in that, you know, you've got to remember that we talk a lot about net migration. But actually, that's the difference between two larger numbers. Uh, For instance, if you look at the last year's figures for emigration, that's 339,000 people left the UK, even though uh, they were exceeded by the numbers immigrating. Mm. Um, last year, the 107, of, of those emigrating, 117,000 EU citizens left. That's a rise of 31,000 compared with 2015. So if you get a movement out of the door, businesses follow them out of the door. If you can't hire the right sort of software coder uh, or, or um, chemist or whatever in Britain, and you're not allowed to bring them in, then you've you go find out where they are and set up your laboratory or your high value added facility there you can you know it's obviously much more worrying for the overall economy if you're talking about high value high skilled people people at apple who you know they don't they don't build all the individual widgets that go into an iphone but they make all the money because they do all the high value work and what little of that we have in this country which is you know it's there's quite a lot of it in the motor industry indeed even in uh, chip making arm you know, the big chip maker is, 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 it doesn't actually make any chips. It designs them all and takes the royalties and does very well out of it. It's just been bought by a, a Japanese firm which could easily move it all out of the country in spite of all the promises it's made not to. So that, that, that this is a huge danger that then British people start thinking, actually, this isn't a great place to be. Do you remember Ireland and Portugal and Spain and places like that when they were just seeing their own brains, not foreign labour, their own people moving away and they had to start advertising 
uh, please come back. Remember, the Irish government did this in the last 20 years or so. The Spanish did it in South America. I used to see adverts come to Spain, uh, trying to get Argentines to move back mm. to Spain. Do we want to be in that position where we're worrying about a drain of emigrants, actually British emigrants? We're seeing such a swirl of so many things potentially happening at the same time. You know, Closing yourself off from your largest market, a fall in the value of your currency, a sense of political instability, which now looks pretty much indefinite. I mean, it's very hard to imagine a you know, British government in the near future, which, which would be looking particularly stable as it tries to deliver on this extraordinarily vast and complicated political and technical project. And then just this sense of sort of social toxicity of, of a real corruption of the way in which we talk. I mean, you know, we, we've just been talking about these citizens. That's years now of people having this threat of basically mass deportation hanging over them. I mean, there's no other way to put it. I mean, because ultimately that's what the threat entails. And no one ever says it, but of course that's what it entails. Liam Fox saying, you know, that they're one of our best cards. I mean, that kind of toxicity in the way that we talked about politics and the way that we socially interacted with one another simply was not there before. Now, you put all of these things together. And yes, it, you know, you're right to say we, we should absolutely not become too hysterical, too shrill, but at the same time, you need to be aware of all of these factors at the same time and say, well, this leads to a very, very bad place. And it may, you know, it may not be such a terribly bad idea if we reconsider. Well, it's one of these things where I'm like, oh, I remember this from, from Project Fear, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like Northern Ireland. And it's like, yes, we should avoid sort of any, uh, you know, schadenfreude, gloating, etc. But there were things that were predicted that seemed to be happening. And that were just dismissed as hysteria and yet seemed entirely logical. These were not wild predictions. This wasn't putting a very unconvincingly precise sum on how much every household mm, would lose. Mm. This is just stands to reason that if you create uncertainty, if you create instability, people are not going to want to be here so much. One of the things about immigration, of course, is that people you, you only get a lot of people coming to your country because your country is doing so well, because it's so desirable. They're not pouring into kind of like, you know, sort of basket cases. So one surefire way, I suppose, to reduce immigration is just to hurt yourself, mm. make yourself less attractive, less prosperous, less pleasant. And, and I say it's, it's early days. And obviously one hopes that people are not going to be like pouring out of the country. But this seems to me like something that was absolutely inevitable from the day of the referendum. There's also such a big psychological distinction, isn't there, uh, between having to fill out these forms because you've arrived here and then coming here on the freedom of movement and then being demanded that you fill out these forms. Because one of them is a worse scenario than your status quo and the other one was just the status quo as you went into it. So emotionally, they cannot be considered the same sort of process. And when you start, especially off the back of the, the kind of political rhetoric we've had over last year, telling people, well, here's another form, here's another form, all for you know, all for your ability to work here. And then they look out the window and it's raining every bloody day and you know people aren't that nice when they go to the shops and I just think, well, well, what on earth am I doing in this place? It doesn't seem to have any value for me. But then, you know, this is us thinking this is a bad thing. It wouldn't surprise me that very many Brexiters think it's a very good thing. After all, they're the ones that apparently think we're so full. We need to have less people coming. They will invariably say, oh, well, that means that there's more British people get a shot at those jobs. Completely unaware of the fact that we have tried reskilling across, you know, British indigenous workers over and over again. It's very, very hard to reskill an adult. Much easier to start doing that stuff in childhood. We don't, you know, that is not something that is going to take place just because these people lose. Instead, we will be poorer. We will have worse public services. We'll be a less dynamic economy. We'll be a less open society will be less diverse. It will be as simple as that, you know, just a country making itself worse because it's gone mad about plumbers. There do seem to be people who, who you know, who do have sort of like buyer's remorse here, like on the Today programme, the, the, obviously we're talking the other end of the market here from the, from the brain drain, but the fruit farmer who voted leave and now felt that his business was under threat because he, he relied on fruit pickers from the EU. And 
it, it, again, it was one of those moments where you, you just think, well, wh- which bit of this could you not have seen coming? Exactly. Uh, what would be interesting is that how the, the factor of wages plays out. It is said by some people that, in part, the election result that we've just had was because of uh, growing uh, frustration with wage stagnation, particularly public sector workers who might have... There was a, a one or two cases quoted in the papers of uh, teachers or whoever telling Conservative candidates, I would have voted for you, but I can't face another few more years of wage stagnation. One of the key claims of the Brexit side is that all these foreigners coming over here are depressing British wages, mm. even though study after study shows that if, any, if, if there's any effect at all, it's minuscule. So what will happen is that we will not see a rebound, it seems to me, in, in wages. And you know, even if we successfully chase away vast numbers of EU citizens and perhaps a lot of British citizens follow them out of the door to try and get a job somewhere. You know, the, the, the point is we won't see um, this golden age of sort of British workers being handed amazing pay rises. So how will that affect uh, the way people begin to see it? They realise that Brexit isn't delivering one of the key things it was supposed to deliver. Now for a quick commercial break. Fortunately, the brain drain has not yet affected the culture podcast industry. And we have a sister podcast about music, books, film and TV called Big Mouth. Every week, some of Britain's top entertainment writers get together to talk about what really matters among new releases, music, movies and TV. This week's a bit of an experiment as the Big Mouth team record live at the Glastonbury Festival in the windy shadow of the Pyramid stage. At least it didn't rain much. So if you want to find out who was good and who was bad at the world's greatest music festival, then have a listen to Big Mouth at audioboom.com slash channels slash Big Mouth. It's the pop culture podcast for smart people. Now for our third topic, the Brexit negotiations finally, finally started on 19th of June with David Davis representing a government that didn't yet really exist. And he came off worse in his first encounter with EU chief negotiator Michel Barnier. Davis wanted trade talks to proceed in parallel with the exit talks, and he promised the row of the summer on this issue. Very exciting. In the event, he rolled over on day one, and trade talks will now not start until October. Ian, you wrote a pretty scathing match report on Barnier versus Davis, which said that Davis wasn't beaten in a game of strategy. Barnier did not dazzle him with sophisticated arguments. He capitulated because of the power dynamic. So what happened? What does it mean? Yeah, the, the same thing that we knew was going to happen from the very beginning um, and that we've understood for months. So the reason that the power dynamic is uh, lopsided is not really because of the size of the markets, although that, that is a major that is a major factor. So the fact that there is continuity for the EU and there is no continuity for the UK. So there are hundreds of third-party agreements on trade and various regulatory things that we have under an EU umbrella that we will not have if we leave the EU without having patched it all up. That could potentially create chaos, chaos in airports, chaos in steel, chaos across you know any, any real aspect of the economy or society that you look at. We also don't have our customs sort of bodies properly set up and trained and staffed in order to do what they are probably going to have to do. So if it was to happen very suddenly on that March 2019 and they're not in place, that just means you're going to have these huge queues at the border where goods can't flow. We also haven't sorted out our laws. The Great Repeal Bill is not going to do that. It is like the first tenth of a solution to the problem that you're eventually going to have to do. And so we will have this black hole in our law, in our statute book, if this happens without us planning for anything. We also haven't created the regulators. We need to create regulators across the landscape, you know, doing all sorts of things in order to fill these functions. We haven't done it. We haven't hired the people. We haven't advertised for the people. We, haven't, we don't know what systems they're going to use. Wherever you look, there is stuff we need to do that if we don't do, we're in an awful lot of trouble. And that explains 
everything about the Brexit dynamic. Because what it means is that when we say, no, I'm not going to do that, they say, OK, we'll talk, stop. And the clock keeps on ticking. So here you are, getting close to the day, you can't arrange anything. And here's the key part. We don't know what regulators we need, what laws we need, what systems we need to put in place, because we haven't negotiated it yet. It is not like you can pre-plan it from now. It's contingent on the results of the negotiations that you know the work that you need to do. Therefore, the EU has all of the leverage on talks continuing. So you sit down and you say, well, we don't agree with sequencing of talks. As David Davis said, we want to discuss everything all together, which, by the way, is logically by far the most sensible position to hold. It makes no sense to talk about these things separately. The only reason the EU is insisting on that is because it makes us even weaker than we are. They are very sensibly using their leverage in a way that we have magnificently failed to do. So you sit down, we go, well, we don't agree with that. They say, well, we don't care. You're just going to have to sit here and take it now. And therefore we say, okay, fine, we'll do it. And now what happens next? You know, it's the EU that decides when enough progress has been made on divorce in order for us to continue, you know, having the negotiations on free trade. They say it might happen by the end of the year, but they make the call on when they are happy with that happening. So when we say no ECJ jurisdiction, well, they might think that that means that they're not going to make the call for the next bit. When we say we're not going to pay all that money in the budget, we think, well, that just means we're not going to make any consideration on the next bit. This is the central dynamic of Brexit. We've known it before. David Davis has proved that, what, within hours, within what, minutes of walking into that negotiation? Room, perfectly clear what the dynamic is there and it will continue to be the dynamic there is almost nothing we can do about it there was a potential before talk started for us to maximize leverage neutralize theirs and behave in a sensible way we did not take that opportunity and now these are the consequences and it seems to me that it's also an illustration of what the purpose of an international body like the EU actually is. That if Britain were negotiating Brexit with France now, then uh, the negotiation would be much more even, or with uh, Luxembourg or whatever. The fact is that the EU is a kind of force multiplier. It's got all the 27 countries together. They can say no, and it's hard to resist them. That's what happens when a country is trying to join the EU. They simply get a big... Uh, thing with lots of chapters is plonked on the table and say, right, you have to agree to chapter one, and when you've done that, you'll agree to chapter two, and then you'll agree to chapter three. Mm-hmm. And the EU, because it's it's got all those governments behind it, and it's a desirable thing, uh, it's got lots of desirable stuff on offer, can uh, make itself prevail. That's why you have these kind of international bodies, actually. Well, you make it sound very complicated, but, but apparently it's very simple. According to uh, <laughs> Lee Hurst, the alleged comedian-turned-Brexit hardliner... <laughs> who uh, laid out the UK's uh, perfect strategy in in a single tweet. I would just put our terms down, say they're non-negotiable, give them 24 hours to comply. If they don't, walk. Saves time and money. Brilliant. There's also another <laughs> another uh, alleged... And I just don't, I just don't think this... I don't think that people are using Hearst uh, as, as they could be. Get him in there. Yep. Just... Get him pointing at them. <laughs> Get them pointing at 24 hours to yep. comply walks out the door, slams the door, so they know he's not messing about. Bosh. Done. A, the, I was going to mention there's another alleged comedian by the name of David Davis, who uh, <laughs> um, once wrote uh, a little red management book called How to Turn a Company Round. One of your colleagues at The Guardian spot, spotted this very, very uh, un, a little known it's, it's term. It's the sugar industry's answer to the art of the deal, isn't Indeed. it? Indeed. And uh, I think if you, if you ever write a book giving advice to people, you are a legitimate target. So let's have a good laugh, shall we? So first of all, he says that you, it's very important to have a general air of visible determination 
determination and activity um, because it's it's a key part of the perception um, shaping exercise when you're um, when you're doing negotiations. In other words, look busy, create a lot of hot air. He hasn't done that very well, I have to say. Um, and the other thing he's the very important point he makes is that losers are the ones who make the first concession on a major issue well mm. who has just made a concession on a major issue mm. so oh, not great yes he's really gone back to the hits this week especially hasn't he? he's been going on about sort of trade and they sort of need us more than we need them all of this old school nonsense and he's gone all the way back to it he started talking then about transitions and actually one of the interesting things that came out was well first of all he ludicrously said oh i didn't want to talk about the transition too much at the start because i didn't want us to look too pleady for it and you're like yes well thank you so much david that was an incredibly you know successful strategy you pursued now where we've ended up is that he is seeming to be in this sort of bickering fight with philip hammond over how long it should be the most revealing thing that happened when he was disagreeing with philip hammond is saying that hammond's positions themselves are not necessarily consistent and that little bit of sniping told us quite a lot about what it looks like around that cabinet table now that May has become basically a statue. You know, it doesn't really do anything that has no proper power. So they're clearly chipping away at one another. And it seems to be one of the core components of that is on the length of the transition. At the same time, of course, you've got uh, Hammond saying dreadful things about Boris Johnson and you're going off and saying, I'm, I'm encouraging my colleagues to mention cake as little as possible. So you can start to see those dynamics working their way through now. But nevertheless, David Davis... Really, some pretty poor stuff from him this week. He remains the best of the sort of Brexit musketeers, the one that's most on top of it. And yet he is just utterly dreadful on, by, you know, taking at face value the kind of statements that he's been putting out is, this is week. There, is, is there anyone on the bench that you would replace Davis with? Is there anybody you think would be doing? You were talking about the sort of the structural power imbalance. Mm. How much of this is like Davis uh, failing to, to listen to his own 30 year old advice? And how much of, you know, would anybody else be doing any better? It's hard to think of anyone on the Tory front bench who'd be doing any better because they were specifically selected in order to deliver on this kind of proposal. You know, when, when Theresa May came over, she was, she was the Brexit prime minister, so she selected people on that basis. Of course, the kind of people who would be doing an awful lot better would be if you put someone like Dominic Greaves, you know, in that position, you know, Tory MP, very, very moderate, very liberal figure, doesn't want to be doing it. But to be honest, one of the best things you could do is get a bunch of Remainers to deliver on Brexit. It might indeed, they, it might indeed change. You, you were, were criticising earlier, r rightly, that Brussels for not responding to Britain's proposal on uh, citizens' rights with their own proposal. They just sat and complained about what Britain had said. If you, you, they followed your idea and sent some moderate Remainer-type conservative um, figures to negotiate, maybe it would prompt Brussels to take a more constructive attitude because they think, well, these are the best guys. we These guys are the, the most reasonable people we could deal with. Let's try and help them. I know it may be a full-on hope, but it seems but a if reasonable Hammond, if, like, if Hammond turned out, mm, yeah. you, you'd probably be a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. Maybe a bit, but he's, he's still pretty rubbish. I mean, look, he still wants to leave the single market. He still wants to leave the customs union. I'm just grading... Yes, Given that no, they're all fair. rubbish, yeah. it's just like every now and then I feel a kind of like, well, he's not that as bad as that as the rest. Yeah, no, that, and that's true. But the thing is that ultimately, it's about a, it's it's a time capacity problem. And anyone that's saying, well, we're going to have a couple of years transition and then we'll be out the single market and customs union has not understood the problem with the time and the problem with the capacity. And until someone goes in there with a plan that does recognise that, for instance, someone who said, well, look, we're going to go seven years on an EEA deal 
and at the end of that seven years, it'll it'll expire. There has to be some active role in order to extend it. But it does something that tries to address the fact that we don't have the capacity and we don't have the time. It, you don't really think that the central dynamic will be changed at all, except for the fact that there may be a bit that they just like him a bit more because he's a bit more critical and a bit less balmy. But that in and of itself seems like an insufficient improvement. And there's some slippery language we need to watch out with what they're saying about things like the customs union. So David Davis was saying we will be out of the single market and the customs union by March 2019, mark my words. Well, I can just see David Davis, if he's still doing the job in a couple of years' time, standing up with a straight face saying we have left the EU customs uh, union, but we're now entering a customs union with the EU customs union, Mm. which people will say, oh, this is rubbish. What the hell are you talking about? Well, they think about it this way. If we leave the EU in March 2019, we will automatically leave, in a strict sense, the EU customs union. Turkey is not in the EU customs union. On paper, it is in a customs union with the EU customs union. (laughs) That sounds like the same thing, but it isn't actually. There are certain areas, for instance, let's say the EU signs a trade deal with some country over there. That country has the right to send all of its stuff into Turkey via the customs union, but Turkey doesn't automatically gain the right to send its goods uh, under the terms of the agreement into country X. So there are actually, there's a few subtle differences. There's the stuff about services as well, that actually we could form a customs union with the EU customs union, but not be in the EU customs union. It's one of these things that yeah, we have to look through the, the fine print and find that actually things that look the same are not. And possibly Davis is choosing his words very carefully. Of course, by definition, when we leave the EU, we will not be a member of the EU whatever arrangement. We, we might have something similar to it. For instance, instead of being subject to the European Court of Justice, we will be subject, uh, for, for the purposes of migrants and, and so on, to something similar. The question then is, does it make any difference? And it may well be that any differences that exist are not to our benefit. I get the feeling that all but the most passionate, lifelong leavers are going to just be so fatigued by the time David Davis makes this baffling speech in two years time it feels like a lot of sort of fudges would be possible the people are just going we just we've done it now we've voted to leave let's just leave you know hard brexit now it just feels like by the time any of this actually happens i don't know how many people are still gonna have the stamina to be insisting on the difference between this particular relationship with the customs union or that particular relationship you know i really do wonder how long this which is you know it is already ebbed since last year but this kind of wave of sort of Brexiter anger can survive Look at these endless negotiations. I mean, we, we are in a good position right now, better than I think we could have dreamed of, for instance, when we started this podcast, uh, in, in terms of where the debate is. We've removed that sense of democratic swagger that they had, of, you know, just respect the vote, the will of the people, all of that. The, the election campaign has basically neutralised that. She looked for a man that she didn't get it. We're now in the negotiations where over and over Britain will find itself being sort of slapped around by a larger partner and all of those myths, those lies that were told over the years, just shown to be completely false in terms of what can be done. And we're in the period where, you know, the economics are actually starting to squeeze, where we're actually seeing an economic effect towards the things that we've talked about, especially with the currency, with inflation. And finally, Brexit has turned from something that was all... I mean, do you remember, not so long ago, it was the answer to every promise and every dream. You know, it was a unicorn for everyone and everyone will skip over the lake to go to their lovely job. And now it is just problem after problem after problem. It is a damage limitation exercise, nothing more. And we've still got 
a year and a half of this to go. And that is the context now in which this debate takes place. And it seems to me that if a debate cannot be won in that context, then maybe we don't deserve to do so because it really should be won that we can win. Well, it was a good, but yeah, it was meant to be kind of like slice the Gordian knot. And instead, it's someone just like hacking away at the knot with a spoon yeah. for years. <laughs> at, at their own hand as it holds the knot. Yeah, I mean. constantly hitting their other hand. <laughs> We're coming to the end of the show, but we just have time to blow our own trumpet for a moment. Romaniacs continues to go down a storm among proud Ramonas up and down the country. Wazrix on Twitter says, this podcast is currently the only thing keeping me sane. Vicky Gillard, also on Twitter, says, uh, enjoying the sunshine, working in the garden, binge listening to Romaniacs cast, well informed, funny and staunchly remain, what's not to love? And uh, Nikos van der Eck Nikos, if I said your name wrong, do let us know. Leaves a review on iTunes which says, what, am I going to read that? This is about myself. <laughs> go on, okay, go I'm, on, uh, take it. This sounds dreadful. Ian Dunt is the Muhammad Ali of Romanus. Uh, as an <laughs> EU national living in the UK, this podcast provides much sucker and comedy in these worrying times. Thank you very much, Nikos. Also on iTunes, I think it's either Fox V or Fox VI or Fox the Sixth, I suppose, if it's Roman numerals, <laughs> says, I'm a citizen of Europe. Long and line of foxes. Well, indeed, yeah. yeah. <laughs> or, or, or My fo- father was Fox the Fifth. <laughs> or, or Fo the Sixteenth. It could be, yes. Yes, indeed. Yes. Apologies, Fox V or whoever you are for mocking your uh, Twitter handle or iTunes handle. Anyway, he, uh, he or she says, I'm a citizen of Europe and tired of being made to feel unpatriotic. I'm very cross and sad about leaving, but now with the help of you guys, I feel able to speak out again. Hallelujah. So that's the end of the show. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Ian and Peter as ever. If you want to hear this edition of Romaniacs again, why wouldn't you? Or any of our old shows, or if you want to subscribe, or find us on Facebook or Twitter, well, now we have a one-stop shop for all our stuff. Go to Romaniacs.com. That's Romain with an I, and then Iax.com. And you'll get links to us on Audioboom, iTunes, and now Spotify, which is very exciting as well as all our social media stuff and more. We'll be back on the Ramona phone this time next week. Until then, we're going to finish with a reason to be cheerful. And this week, it's my turn. The EU Commission has imposed a £2.1 billion fine on Google after finding the search engine had abused its power by putting its own shopping comparison engine at the top of its search page, a probe that they started in 2010. And this just seems to be the kind of thing that the EU is, is, is good at protecting us from. Indeed. You, if France had just threatened to do this on its own, Google could be saying, oh, well, we'll have to start sub- withdrawing some of our services and closing people's Gmail accounts and so on. It's much harder to do that if you've got this massive market of you know, getting on for 600 million people at the moment. Uh, it would be very foolish for an organisation like Google to, to cut off everybody in such a big market. So, again, it shows that there are good things to being part of an, uh, an international organisation like the EU. Enjoy them while they last. So there we have it, another show over, time for goodbye. This week, uh, the language I'll be mangling is Portuguese. Adeus e boa sorte. Romaniacs is presented by Dorian Linsky, Ian Dunt and Peter Collins. It's produced by Matt Hall and Andrew Harrison. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.